0: Most of you on a Wednesday night have read the Bible. Going to assume that um, the Bible is interesting in the way it's written, isn't it? It's not written like a theology book. You can't like open a chapter in the Bible and say, "I want to open the chapter on finding God's will." Can you? There's no chapter like that. You can't look at like I want to open the Bible on how to determine the right person to marry, right? There's no chapter on that. We might wish there is, but there isn't. I have one verse that helped me decide who to marry. It's First Corinthians thirteen thirteen. There abideth these three, faith, hope, and charity. <laughs> and the greatest of these is, that was it, I'll take her. <laughs> She's the greatest, all right, I'll take her. But most people don't have that opportunity. So the Bible, it's actually kind of strange because it's not at all like I would have written it. What is actually the Bible? How is it written? It's a story, someone's whispering. It's a story, that's what it is, right? It's just this story. Starts out with God putting a great place for people. We break it, keep breaking it, keep breaking it, keep breaking it, and it ends with God rebuilding a great place for us to go. It's a story of redemption, When you look at the life of Jesus, he is often asked questions. How does Jesus respond most of the time? Hey, let me tell you a story. Who's my neighbor? Hey, let me tell you a story. (laughs) Guy was walking down the road. Now, why does Jesus do that? Because you can remember stories, can't you? I don't know how many times I've been in Walmart or someplace in Grants Pass and, oh man, I remember that story you told. I'm like, do you remember the point of the story? No, I don't think he had a point. I just like the story, right? We remember story. It's the way our brains are built. We can remember story. Jesus knows that. The Bible knows that. And there's always more in a story than in facts. Do you know that? That stories are actually condensed theology. Read the good Samaritan. Read the prodigal son. How much theology is packed into that story about the nature of the father? about the nature of older brothers and younger brothers, about grace and sin. It's unbelievable. Packed densely into one story. So that's the Bible, like brilliantly. So here's where we're at in Galatians. Paul has been facts, reason, argument, poking, you name it. Calling them fools, calling, you know, across the whole board. And now he's going to tell a story, like every good preacher should. He's now going to illustrate this with this story. So chapter four is, how do you tell the difference between a son and a slave? We talked about that two weeks ago. I'm your friend. You can trust me. And now he concludes this with a story. Let's check it out. Chapter four, verse 21. Galatians 4, 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children, but the, but the Jerusalem, which is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. he illustrates. And I love how he begins this. Verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Have you actually read it? Why would you want to be under that? No bacon, no crab, no thanks. I don't want to be under that thing. It's like, are you kidding? Do you know what you're asking for, people? Paul is, he can't believe it. He grew up under that. Are you kidding? Have you actually read it? Do you know what you're asking for? Sometimes I think we ask for things that we don't know we're asking for. We're like my son Elijah. When he was little, he was about three years old. uh, My wife makes this, it's so good. It's lentil soup. I'm not normally a lentil soup person, but she makes it, it's brilliant. It's so delicious. I love it, but my body doesn't love it. Right, <laughs> so there's this incredible, unbelievable elixir called Bino that helps me out. <laughs> so I'm ready to eat my bowl of lentils, and my son Elijah, who's like two and a half, three years old, and I get out two of those little Bino things, and I'm chomping them down. And Elijah's like, "Can I have some of those?" I'm like, "Buddy, you don't want one of these." He's like, "Yes, I do. I want some Bino, please. I want some Bino." I said, "Fine. They taste like chalk, but sure." So he gets one, he starts chomping it, and he goes. I've got gas in my mouth. Yuck. (laughs) Sometimes I don't think we know what we're asking for. Paul's like, are you kidding me? And so then he jumps into the story, right? The story. Do you know what you're asking for? You're asking for the law. Are you kidding me? C.S. Lewis has this brilliant essay on it where he says, I don't understand how the psalmist can say, my delight is in the law of the Lord. C.S. Lewis says, Are you kidding? How could your delight be in that? I had lunch with a guy a week ago, and this topic came up like the Bible. Like, wh- what do you believe about the Bible? The guy had not seen in probably four years, five years, six years. It's been a long time. Since I've gone to seminary, he's like, okay, you've gone to seminary now. What do you think about the Bible? Are you a Portland liberal progressive now? What do you think about the Bible now that you've gone to seminary? I said, here's what I think. I said, the only way you can make sense of passages like that, delighting in the law, the only way you can ever make sense of the Bible is one thing, it has to speak about Jesus. If there's any other end to the story, I said, it does not make sense. And I gave him this example. It's Moses in Exodus 32 and 33, The people have made the golden calf, danced nakedly around it, done stuff they should not do. God is obviously upset about that. Moses comes up, begins to speak to God. What does God say? I'm wiping them all off the face of the earth, right? I'm going to destroy all them. And what does Moses do? Don't do that. He intercedes. He mediates for the people. And then what does God do? Changes his mind. It's the Hebrew word shu. It means repent. He repents. Are you kidding me? How in the world is that? How do you f- That is a theological pretzel. I-, I thought God knew everything. Why would God change his mind? What's going on there? I said, the only way you can make sense of those kind of passages is if the point of that passage is Jesus. And here's how. That The point of that passage is this. It's setting up God's people who are reading the story of the Bible to know this. We need a mediator. We need an intercessor. We are broken. We make mistakes. And we need somebody to stand in between us and God. And they have to be better than Moses because in a couple chapters, he loses his temper. Now, who is the only one that can actually mediate between us and God? Jesus. When the Bible, the teleos, Romans ten four, when the teleos is Jesus, Scripture makes perfect sense. You're not in pretzels anymore. So I said, that's what it is. The only way you can say, my delight is in the law of the Lord is if, is if you understand the law is pointing me. It is the, like we looked at in Galatians chapter 3, it's the pedagogus who's walking me to Jesus. And once it gets me there, I'm set free. That's the only way. So Paul's like, are you kidding me? You've been brought to Jesus. Why are you going back to this? And now he gives the story, and this is the story, the prototypical story of the Bible. Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, Ishmael, Isaac, the most important story in the Bible. And what does he do to the story? He makes an allegory of it. If you're a Bible student, this is one of the most troubling chapters in the Bible. How can you take this story and make an allegory of it? Because it seems to change a bunch of the meaning of it. And it's super hard. People say this, Paul, and I agree with them, had what's called apostolic privilege. He's inspired by God's spirit. He's able to do this. Too many people today still believe they have apostolic privilege. And so they get into really strange stuff. They start making the Bible into numerology or Bible types, or they get into eschatology and they get re- weird with eschatology. Revelation 9 is a helicopter and it's aliens and it's uh, sexual stuff or it's aliens in helicopters. You know, it just it's nutty. We don't have apostolic privilege. And when I tell people when they start getting off on those things, I say this, listen, the main things of scripture are always plain. Do not make a career of the goofy stuff. If you can't define for me what sanctification means and justification means and these simple plain doctrines of scripture, don't worry about all that goofy stuff yet, allegories and that stuff. Don't worry about that until you get the foundation you need, because Paul had a phenomenal foundation and then start dealing with troubling texts. So for me, it's real simple. The story is this. Paul is using this apostolic privilege, no doubt. He is under the inspiration of God's spirit, and he is saying something real simple. He's saying this. There's two families built on two foundations. There's a foundation of the flesh that brings slavery, and there's a foundation of promise that brings freedom, and that's it in verse 29, he says something that I think is really important for us to know. Just at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. This is Genesis 21, 9, where Ishmael mocks Isaac, the half-brother, the, the product of the flesh of of. Slavery to the law mocks Isaac, the product of promise. I underline that in my Bible. Because the biggest trouble that we'll have as believers in grace is not agnostics or atheists. It's half-brother legalists who get mad at you and call you sloppy agape or cheap grace or immature or shallow. And if you were just able to go deeper with us in these things, then you'd really realize this is it. They're the people that persecute true gospel people more than anyone else because they can't understand grace. And to me, the core misunderstanding that drives that is what we believe about God When you think about God, what kind of images come to your mind? Is he a policeman? A boss? A drill sergeant? A behavioralist? You know, caring about behavior more than anything else? Because what happens then, the way that you see God is the way then that you translate all that you read in the Bible, and you become like it. If Jesus or if God is a policeman, then that's what you start doing. If God is like the referee blowing a whistle every time somebody does something wrong, then that's what we'll do too. We'll be throwing flags and blowing our whistle all the time at people. Foul! Or is God the Abba Father? The one that you see in the story of the prodigal son who rushes out and embraces his younger son. The way you see God is really, really important. And Hebrews 1 would say this, every question you have about God is answered in Jesus. It's amazing to me how Jesus dealt with sinful people. Man, he was so gracious and so loving and so kind. It was the legalists that Jesus had the hardest time with. Was it not? How do you see Jesus? How do you see God? Super important. Jesus, to me, is the deep end of the Bible. Everything else is the kiddie pool. I've said this all the time. If you're an adult in the kiddie pool, someone's calling the cops. Stay in the deep end. Stay with Jesus, okay? And the way that I kind of know that I'm beginning to get into what I call half brother tendencies is when I stop listening to people that have differing opinions of me. When I won't listen to it, I'm like, ah, oh, no, you're wrong. Ah! When I'm really solid in what I believe about Jesus, Knowing the gospel well, I can listen really well to other people and their opinions and their thoughts, and listen, and then if I have an answer, give it, but I won't be cutting them off. So what are we supposed to do with people that are half-brother legalists, that are laying trips on us? What do we do with them? Verse 30, cast them out. You're not teaching Bible studies. I'm not going to listen to that. No. No. Stop listening to the voice in us. Every single one of you, every single one of us has a half-brother legalist that lives inside of us. I call it going back to Genesis 1 and 2, the covenant of works it's in all of us. It's in our very DNA to be a legalist. And we have to keep bringing the gospel to bear on our own legalism and say, no, that doesn't work. No, that's wrong. All right? So now we go into... Galatians chapter five. Galatians five is brilliant. A couple Sundays ago, I introduced it like this. It's like Pinocchio. When Pinocchio becomes a real boy, the strings are gone, right? He doesn't need strings anymore. When you and I get saved, we become real humans once again. The deadness is made alive, We're transformed, new heart, new spirit, new power. All this stuff happens to us. We don't need the strings anymore. We don't need the strings of the law. But what replaces now the strings that used to keep us on track and used to kind of guardrail us, what replaces the strings in the New Testament believer? The Spirit, chapter 5. That we now have Jesus giving us his spirit that dwells inside of us, writes on the tablets of our heart, produces fruit in us, wars in us. It's it's this chapter. In this chapter, I love it. There's so many metaphors. Verse 1: a prisoner that loses his freedom. Verse 3: someone that goes bankrupt and loses all their cash. Verse 7: a runner that loses his way. Verse 9: a baker that ruins the bread. Verse 15. Sheep that changed into the big bad wolf, verse 17. Soldiers in battle, verse 19. Workers in the wrong occupation, verse 22. Trees loaded with fruit. It's brilliant. So we'll try to jump in. It's an amazing chapter. We'll get as far as we can. Verse one. This one is a circle underline highlight. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Why are you set free? For freedom. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. If you go back to the law, you nullify the work of Christ. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated, literally indebted there to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace for through the Spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Jesus Christ, Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Verse 1 You've been set free. What have you been set free from? Empty religion fear-based performance. Oh no, if I don't do this or if I do do that, God is going to smash me. And we've been set free from trying to pursue pleasure on our own. Being our own God really saying, this will make me happy. is what we talked about on Sunday. That you can elevate things that are good to becoming ultimate and then they ruin you. You've been set free from all that stuff. And now, You've been set free to do what you most want to do. Seek after deep joy instead of these cheap thrills. All the while understanding God loves me. I'm secure in that relationship and he's pursuing me. That's the only thing that can sustain humans. Do you know that? There is nothing outside of that that can ever carry the weight of expectation that humans have. We're too great. Our capacity is too great. Everything else Is too too limited. It's why there's this thing called the Club of 27. I've mentioned it before. The Club of 27 is all these incredibly famous people who died at the age of 27. They got to the top of whatever field they were in, music, arts, acting, and then at the top at 27, usually through very, very strange circumstances, they died. Why? Because they got to the top of whatever they were in, and guess what they found out? That didn't do it. It's like Ecclesiastes chapter two, right? Solomon just gets everything he wants and he says, I hate life. I hate my job, even though I'm the king. Because nothing can take the capacity of a human. We have eternity in our hearts. It's too great. Only God can sustain us. So we're set free from trying to make it on our own. He gives it to us, right? So how do we stay in that freedom? Stand firm. Does it matter where you stand? I'll give you one story where it mattered to me. So as an engineer, I had a lot of business in Japan. So I made three trips over there, like five days, maybe seven days. And I was always chauffeured around by somebody so I wouldn't get lost in Tokyo. But the third trip, I took my wife over and at that point, my two-and-a-half-month-old daughter, Carissa. And um, because I was staying for about a month, they said, take the subway. So I'm like, okay. So I got a map, figured out where I need to go. Monday morning, seven in the morning, I go down to the subway station. I get down there. It, we were kind of on the outskirts of town a little bit. I was heading into town. I get there. The first subway train comes up. I could not believe it. That subway train was so packed. When the doors opened, literally that subway train puked out about 15 Japanese people, just plat. Some people got out and then there was these two men that stood by the doors, more people lined up, and then they just started shoving more of these people into the subway train. And he, the guy just motions me over. I said, oh, no, I choose life. I'm not going in there. And they shove them in. They just get, you can see the entire, like, people in the subway train, like, ripples of more, like, and then, then shut the doors. I'm like, I'll wait for the next one. Boom, they leave. The next one even more packed. This time the doors open, like 50 people just come out of it. I'm like, and they actually surrounded me and I just kind of got sucked in with them and then just shoved right into this subway. It was the, if you were claustrophobic, I could not imagine, this would be hell for you. Like it was unbelievable. The only thing that I had that was a saving grace is I'm a little bit taller than the average Japanese. And I was just, I couldn't lift my arms up. I had a briefcase in one hand. I could not move my arms. I just, would, I just looked up and went, oh, oh God, take me to heaven, please. <laughs> Beg for death, right? It's insane. Gotta watch where you stand or you might end up in a really bad spot. Where are we supposed to be standing? Listen to what Martin Luther says. He's really... He's got a lot of flack for this statement. You have to read it in context. It's in a letter he wrote to his really good friend Philip. He says this, quote: God does not save those who are only imaginary sinners. Be a sinner and let your sins be strong, but let your trust in Christ be stronger. And rejoice in Christ, who is the victor over sin, death, and the world. End quote. Brilliant. Christ saves sinners. That's where I stand. And his victory is over my sin and over death and over Satan. That's where I stand, right? I am broken, but I'm beloved. That's what Luther is saying. You're broken like all of us. Don't act like you're some kind of imaginary sinner. Like you talked about sin in the third person. No, I'm a sinner. But I am beloved by the king of the universe. That's how you stop the lies of the enemy. Do you know that? That's the only rock you and I can stand on. All other ground is sinking sand. That's it. Everything else is the wrong place to stand. You keep standing on. Jesus is my righteousness. He saves real sinners like me. That's the only place to stand. Right? That's how you stay free. You won't go back to legalism when you know Jesus is your righteousness. So, stay free. Stay out of debt. Verse 3, I testify again again to every man who ever accepts circumcision, going back to trying to earn something that can only be given, that he is obligated, the Greek there is literally indebted to keep the whole. Debtors back at this time, what would happen to a debtor 2,000 years ago? You would be brought in either to jail or you'd become a slave to the person that you owed money to. Whatever religious activity, circumcision, food, dress, whatever it is, whatever religious activity you believe saves you, you got to keep doing it, don't you? you become a slave to it. If you think this little thing is what makes me special to God, then guess what you're gonna have to do for the rest of your life? That little activity. It becomes your master. It lords over you. And here's what that's like doing. It's like, have you ever been on a plane and there's like a little kid and little kid thinks he's flying the plane? Like he's, you know, he, he, he thinks he's the one in charge. Like I'm the guy that if I stop doing my job right now, this plane is in the water and we're all dead. Right? That's what the little kid believes in his mind. I think. That's what I used to believe when I was a kid. All right? Just, oh, I'm I'm keeping this thing afloat. Now, that's funny for a four-year-old, but if you're 40 still doing it, look out! I can't go to the bathroom. I'm flying this plane. Man, it's weird. It's goofy. Okay? Instead of enjoying the flight, you think you're keeping it up. That's what a legalist is. You think you're making the, the, the flight of God's salvation. You think you're, no, you're not. You're not the pilot. Enjoy the flight, man. Relax. Are you kidding me? You'll be stuck to your seat, trying to keep the same thing over and over and over again. And the next verse, pretty hardcore, you are severed, katageoed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Can you lose your salvation? Pretty good verse right there for it, isn't it? Sounds a lot like it. Balance Scripture with Scripture. John 10, 28. You're in my hand, and no man will snatch you out of my hand. And you're in my Father's hand, and no man will snatch you out of my Father's hand. Philippians 1, 6. I'm confident of this one thing, that he that began a good work in you will be faithful. The faithfulness of God. huge. Huge faithful to complete it. Jude 24, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless on that day, be the glory. I got a whole bunch more, right? Okay, Matt, that's fine. But you can walk away from your salvation. Someone else can't pluck you out of God's hands, but you can get up and walk out of God's hands. All right, Romans 8. 34 through 38, says this. Nothing can separate you from God's love. Not height, not depth, not width, not breadth. Nothing in heaven, nothing down here. Nothing created can separate you from God's love. Are you created? If you got a mommy and a daddy, you're created. (laughs) Nope, you can't separate yourself. Here's here's the, the way I like to put it. Once a pickle, a cucumber no more. Once you get pickled, you cannot make a cucumber out of that thing again, can you? When you believe in Jesus, you got pickled, okay? And there's no going back, period. And here's the reason why it's so important. If salvation was yours, you could lose it. But the Bible says this, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's His, it's on his faithfulness to keep you and me. Well, Matt, what about people that have been in church and they seem like they're, and now they're gone? Well, First John 2, 19 says this. They left us because they were never a part of us. Hebrews 6 would say they tasted, but they never ate it. So if I go south, if for some reason I just say, you know what, I'm out, I don't believe it anymore. All right, then I played a game with you guys. It's me. I played a game. I'm the broken one. It's not God's faithfulness it's me. I was never saved. I was never pickled. I was a cucumber masquerading as a pickle. That's what I was. It's me. I am a hundred percent confident of that. When you are pickled, you cannot be unpickled. You are saved because it is on God, his faithfulness. And that to me is why it's so important because God says, I got you. And either God's got us or he doesn't. And It comes down to his character. And I trust the character of God. All right? So, Paul ends, verse 5, a hope of righteousness, for in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working or literally energized through love. Faith, hope, and love. He'll pick these up again when he writes 1 Corinthians. Here's what we have. As believers, we have a hope. What's our hope? Righteousness. Now, what does it mean in the Bible to hope for something? Is it, I hope that I win the lottery, even though it's one in a billion? Is it, I hope I can get a date with her, even though she's saying, I hope he doesn't ask me out? Is that it? No. The biblical word for hope means an absolute expectation of coming good. It's the hope that you know this is going to happen to you. Our hope is that we'll be righteous. 100%. Our hearts have been made righteous. Our minds are being renewed. This flesh is gonna be changed and we'll be a 100% righteous people. That is the absolute truth of anyone in here who has been pickled into Christianity. That's happening for you, which is such a great hope. We had this uh, friend of the family that uh, began to move into Mormonism and started becoming a Mormon. And I asked her and her daughter, I, I, as we were walking with him, trying to ask him questions about it, I said, so, so you're in now, you're, you're, you're part of this thing. I said, tell me this. Um, do, do you have a hope? Do you have a security in your eternity? Do you have that? She said, no. Um, I have to remain in good standing with the church. I have to pay all my tithes. And I have to to pray that Joseph Smith lets me in. I said, man, that's tenuous. I said, I have a hope of righteousness. I 100% know where my attorney lies. I said, that is a tough road to go. Tough. We have a hope of righteousness. Righteousness, secure. We have faith energized by love. I love this phrase. It's not your circumcision or your uncircumcision, it's not things that you do or you did not do. The fuel for faith is love. So I'll try to explain that like this Um, I got married to my wife almost 19 years ago. and we, we have had a really good marriage. We've never had that hard stretch. But there was, you know, marriage is God's first reality TV show. It's let's take two people that are very different and throw them in a room together and lock the door. And one of them every once in a while has some, some hormone problems. And it's the guy, right? So there's some problems here. <laughs> so it's going to be funny, right? So God laughs. He chuckles. So just the normal thing, like two people trying to figure stuff out. We didn't break cell phones or yell or scream, none of that. But it was like, we, we had some like differences on directions for us, right? Like, what should we do? And I'm like, what, what, you know? Why aren't you agreeing with me? I'm right. <laughs> Which is awesome, right? You have your own personality. You have your own ideas. What? What is this? So I struggled with that for a while until something clicked in my mind. And it was because my wife is so kind and she served me. And she loved me. Early in my marriage, something clicked, and it was this. She's on my team. She wants the absolute best for me. That what she's saying is not an adversary attacking me. It's my ally coming beside me and saying, Matt, I want you to succeed, and I want the absolute best for your life. When that little thing just clicked, man, it energized everything. I had all of a sudden faith in my wife. I trust her completely now. Why? Because she's on my team. She wants the best for me. She loves me, and she's demonstrated that for me. That's what this is saying. When you get how much God loves you, that he is on your team, that he wants you to succeed and has your best in mind every single day, then you say, then I joyfully want to obey you. I joyfully put my faith in you. It energizes your faith. Do you know that God's on your team? That you are the apple of his eye? that he has good thoughts for you, that he wants to bring you to a glorious, incredible end, that Ephesians 3.20 says this, I has not, that's 1 Corinthians 2 I'll do that one too, 1 Corinthians 2.9, "I has not seen, ear has not heard the wonderful things that God has in store for you. Do you know that? When you get that love, it energizes your faith in God. Brilliant, brilliant. That's the motive we're supposed to have our faith, not energized by law or what we do or don't do. Our faith, energized by God's agape love for us. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians, Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, it's the love of Christ that constrains me, that keeps me where I'm supposed to be going. Brilliant. I think I can do this quickly. Verse seven, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Verse 12 is a winner. (laughs) The debate was over circumcision. Paul's like, I wish when they were circumcising, the knife would slip. That's what he's saying. Not circumcision, castration. Harsh, harsh words. So Paul begins by saying, You're running well. Man, you guys were doing so well. Who tripped you? You guys remember the 2004 Olympics in Athens? That guy from Brazil, Vanderlei de Lima, running, going to win. And it would appear, mile 22, 30-second lead, increasing that lead. Strong pace, looked great, didn't look tired. Looked like he was going to win Brazil's first gold medal. They're telling stories about him because it's a long race. He's this young guy, you know, hard life, grew up poor, ran, you know, for groceries and all this kind of stuff. Just a brilliant, you're like, yes, we want him to win. Then remember what happened to him? Cornelius Horan ran out from the crowd and tackled him. Remember that? And this Greek guy went out there and tackled uh, Cornelius Horan and did a little MMA on him. More than was necessary, less than the guy deserved, honestly. And when Vandale de Lima got up and started running again, he was off, right? He couldn't quite get, because it's mental at that point. You've been running for now, whatever, an hour and 45 minutes. You've been running for a long time. It's all mental at that point. And he lost, he kept looking over his shoulder, kept looking over his shoulder, got passed once, got passed twice, and took third. Tripped. Could have been a gold medalist. Tripped. That's what Paul's saying. You guys should be gold medalists. Who's tripping you up? Who's tripping you up? And it's interesting here. It's not what hindered you. It's a who. Hindering (laughs) who's. Sounds like a Dr. Seuss book, huh? (laughs) Look out for the hindering who's. It's a who. It's a person. right? So what do we do? How do we keep from being hindered? Couple things real quick. Number one, verse eight. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. Check your source. If you want to watch out from being tripped up in this race that we're in, watch your source. I talked to a guy. I talked to guys a lot about books. And this guy was like, it was a book I could just tell from the title. It was actually on the phone. I said, I don't know about that book, man. And this is what he said to me. But the guy quotes the Bible. Guess what I said? So does Satan. Matthew. 4 Verse 6. That doesn't mean anything, man. Look out. Check your sources. I have a grid by which I try to pass stuff through that either I say, that's right or that's wrong, and it's simple. The psalmist says, magnify God with me. And that same psalmist says, what is man that you're mindful of me? You want a good theological grid? It should. When you read about God, it should make him more amazing in your mind. His grace and his mercy and his compassion, every time you, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. You are That's all magnify means, right? Make God bigger. And when you're reading and studying, God should get bigger. And I should be more in awe that he would love somebody like me. Oh, my goodness. He is so good and so big and so wonderful. How in the world could he love me? To me, that's the grid. If I'm getting that from what I'm reading, oh, This is good stuff. And it's so subtle, like the the subtle kind of ways that we begin to diminish who God is. So I'll give you an example. Why were humans created in Genesis 1? A very common idea is we are created for fellowship with God. Who's heard that? Right, very common. Is it true then? If I was created for fellowship with God, what does that mean about God then? He must have been bored. He must have been lonely. He's like, man, I've been doing this for billions of years. I don't want to do this for another billion. What am I going to do? I'm going to make Matt. Yes. That'll be fun. I'll give him a Volkswagen. The brakes will go out on him. Yes. Let's do that. That's going to be really exciting. It makes God needy then, right? Well, that's not true of God. So Augustine said this about God. He said, the unique thing about the God of the Bible is he's not like any of the gods of the world. Because either they're um, a, 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 a single God who's astir and like off in the desert and cold and indifferent, or they have polytheism, which is all these gods that are like battling each other. So either you have unity, one, but no community, or you've got community and no unity because they're always battling each other. He said, But the Trinity is something where you have unity in community the Father, the Son, the Spirit loving each other in that Trinity because it's the only one like it. Now, God wasn't lonely. Why did God create you and me? I have no idea. I'm going to ask Him though one day. It's just that simple. Sometimes the answers that we give aren't helpful. In fact, I think they're sometimes pointing us in the wrong direction. So we have to be very careful of those things. Check your source. Whenever I think about theology, I should say, God, you are better than I ever imagined. Jesus, you are more wonderful than I could have thought. That's what should be happening to me. And I cannot believe that you love me. That's good theology, right? Check your source. Number two, know the strategy. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. The strategy of the enemy is not full force, go against Jesus. It's always just a little bit off, just a little leaven, step by step by step by step until you can't believe where you end up. My favorite commercial growing up, I still remember to this day. I think it was in the late 80s. It was this picture of this guy and he's running along and he's obviously tired and sweating and there's this voice over this little boy's voice and he goes, uh, when I grow up, I wanna be an Olympic marathoner. And you're like, oh, that's cool. That's what he's doing. It looks like he's running a marathon. And then it starts panning out, and he's got this gray shirt on. It's soaking with sweat. And it keeps panning out. And then you see this hand come in with this blue sleeve, and it grabs the man's shoulder and tackles him to the ground. And the final scene is a cop handcuffing this man. And then a big, booming voice says, no, boy. Dreams of growing up to be a drug addict. Say no to drugs. And the idea behind that is there were some subtle decisions, slow leaven. That move that kid from his dream of a gold medal to something be- very, very different. We have to be careful. Peter puts it like this: be sober. Be vigilant. Because your enemy is like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. It's always a little leaven. And we gotta be sober and we gotta be vigilant. Look out, he's coming for me, he's coming for you. Then lastly, be cross confidence. I have confidence in the Lord who will take that you will take no other view. The one that is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Be cross confident. What is the offense of the cross? Is that God, this is Galatians, God would take broken, sinful pagans without the law, without continual sacrifices, without promising to be better, without circumcision, without diet, without clothing, and say, you're my son, you're my daughter. That's the offense of the cross. Who is it offensive to? People that have been working at it. And I can totally get that. Here's the illustration I actually started Galatians with. Imagine if your dream is to be mayor of Grants Pass. There's an opening right now, by the way. Sign up. <laughs> so you have worked at it. Man, you've volunteered. You've been part of your party. You've done everything. You've given, you've donated. You gave somebody a kidney. Like you've gone beyond anything because your dream is mayor of Grants Pass. You've put your heart into it. Then you win. You're mayor. So you go to this big mayor's convention and you happen to sit right next to the mayor of Ashland. You're like, whoa, you and me, dude, we're, we're homies. I, I've always dreamed of being a mayor. How'd you get it? You're like, man, not me. I've never dreamed of being a mayor. In fact, I've stole drug, done drugs, just been a loser my whole life. But on a drunken bet, I'd bet this guy that I could be mayor of Ashland. So I put my name in the hat. Everybody else dropped out. I won by one vote, mine. <laughs> How do you think he'd feel? He'd be mad. That's unfair. I worked my tail off for this thing. And that's what was happening. You have these Jewish people who for years had been just counting their tithes with with their mint and their nine grains of salt for me, one for God, right? For years. And you're saying, what? They get it for free? It's offensive. And they were offended by it, right? So here's what the cross does. It offends us if we're trying to work For salvation. But here's the other side of the cross. When you are not feeling like you are right, when you're not feeling like you're good, when you're not feeling like you're holy, you go back to the cross and you marvel at the gospel. That even in that moment, when you're feeling ridiculously stupid and you failed again, guess what? He sees you as holy and blameless and he delights in you. That's what I call the offensive cross because the enemy has nothing on you then. Oh, I know I'm a moron. I know I'm a blow-it-case. And I can't believe Jesus loves me. Oh my goodness, how good is he? Listen to me. If you've been pickled, you are God's delight. You are thrice royal citizens of the king. Do you know that? There are three ways to become royal. Born into it, adopted into it, or married into it. Guess what the Christian is? Born again into it, adopted into it, and married into it. You are thrice royal citizens of the king. That's phenomenal. When you get that, you stand fast in the liberty that you've been set free to, and you never go back to the strings. So Jesus today, forgive me. Forgive my half-brother legalistic mentality that believes somehow I can earn what you can only give. That worries that I can lose what you own. May tonight the magnitude of your love for us energize our faith in you. That we just trust you so much more. Not ourselves, not our works, not a church, not another person. It's your love that energizes our faith in you and we have a hope that will not be diminished. That we are righteous. That you who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. That we might be made the righteousness of God. How that's our hope. So stir in us. The greatness of your love and energize our faith and the way that we walk with you tomorrow, we pray. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.